As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's an unacceptable thing to be going through, in my opinion. They can't work, have little money, and are waiting months for the approval of disability claims. I'm seeing like an increase in homelessness. You know, I have quite a few clients who are like living, you know, out of their cars. Why it's taking twice as long to get a disability decision in Wisconsin. Plus, I feel that this is something that could happen anywhere and it could happen to anybody. Airbnbs in city neighborhoods. Contact 6 looks into who's protected under Wisconsin law. Is it hosts or unhappy neighbors? It's kind of scary to know that people are coming and going from a home and you have no idea of who these people really are. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Jenna Sachs, in for Brian Polson, and I am joined today by Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jenna. So we are recording this on Thursday, March 9th, for release today. And we recently aired a Contact 6 report on Fox 6 News about an issue that's affecting at least 24,000 people in Wisconsin. That is the number of people waiting on the approval of initial disability decisions. And as our report pointed out, three years ago, it took on average 116 days to get a decision. Today, it takes 247 days on average, so more than twice the time. And our report really looked into what's causing those decision times to increase, what's causing those delays, and what are the impacts on the vulnerable population that's waiting on those decisions. So part of the things that we can't really get into sometimes for time restraints um, on stories or how we came about, you know, reaching out to these people or them reaching out to us. So in this story in particular, you interviewed a woman with breast cancer. So how did you come to meet her? So we met Christine, who is in West Dallas, after her sister Lori wrote to Fox 6. And Lori told us, you know, her sister was fighting cancer and she was unable to work. And Christine had applied for disability benefits, but she'd been waiting a long time for a decision. And without those disability benefits, Christine can't afford her own apartment, which is important to Christine because she likes her independence, especially when she's not feeling well. So she's been living with Lori indefinitely. And in the meantime, credit card expenses are adding up. Other bills are piling up and the family was simply overwhelmed by all of it. And the last they'd spoken with Social Security, they left feeling very frustrated from the conversation because they were told that the disability determination services were eight months behind and no one had even been assigned to Christine's case yet. So they wrote to us and we went out there in late January. We met with Christine and Lori. Uh, Christine told us she now has stage four breast cancer. And in the beginning, she was working throughout her treatments. She worked as a cleaner. She cared for her elderly parents before they passed. And when she was diagnosed, you know, she tried to push through, but eventually the pain and the exhaustion from those treatments just became 
too much. So it was actually two days before her mastectomy that she said, I can't work anymore. And she filed for disability benefits. And when you meet her, you can sense the exhaustion and you can tell that she, she can't work. She's, she's physically too tired to work amid these treatments and, and, and fighting this cancer. Uh, and so part of this, you know, the story centers around Christine and disability benefits. So, you know, we throw around sometimes some, you know, these acronyms of, you know, SSI, SSDI, and, and obviously they stand for things. So if you're not familiar with it, can you explain what those two things are, what the benefits are also, and then like how people can qualify for those? So you mentioned SSI, which we talked about in the story, that's supplemental security income, and people can apply for SSI if they are disabled and in financial need. You can also apply if you have a limited income and you're over 65. Uh, you can apply if you have children with disabilities or who are blind, and the program is administered by Social Security, but unlike Social Security benefits, it's not based on your prior work experience or a family member's work experience. Um, if you're disabled, and you're in financial need, like Christine is, this is supposed to help you. Now, SSDI is different. That stands for Social Security Disability Insurance. And SSDI does require that you've worked long enough and paid Social Security taxes. So basically, this program pays benefits to adults and kids who have qualifying disabilities and have limited income. But again, it requires you've worked long enough, you've paid enough Social Security taxes on your earnings. Uh, Christine applied for both, and both of these programs are experiencing the same delays at Disability Determination Services in Madison. Well, and those delays, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but obviously, you know, like you said, Christine, it's like the bills don't stop, you know, and and so if you're unable to work and get a paycheck and get that money, you depend on these benefits. And so the delays, which we uh, we heard you say, are almost double on average. So what does that mean for the people who are applying for these? Well, it's interesting. We, we called them a vulnerable population up front because these are people who, by definition, are low income. They have little to no money in savings and they're unable to work. So there is a real hardship here. Christine, fortunately, has family to fall back on. And the reality is not everybody does. We spoke with an attorney at Legal Action of Wisconsin. That's a free legal service. And she told me she's seeing an increase in homelessness. She's seeing more people living in their cars. And that includes people who just got out of prison and are applying for disability for mental health reasons. We also got a statement from Disability Rights Wisconsin, and they said pretty much every day they're hearing about people dying or experiencing life-threatening losses of housing, uh, delayed health care, and bankruptcy while waiting on these decisions. And right now they're warning apl applicants it could take a year or more for you to get this decision, whereas in the past they told them it could take three to five months. So that's quite a bit of difference for people who by definition, if they want to qualify for these benefits, are supposed to be low income to begin with. So, you know, we hear from some of these groups that are expressing frustration and obviously the consumers who are, you know, applying for these benefits and having to wait on a decision. So there's the other side of the coin of the Social Security Administration. So, you know, what do they say about the wait times? And, you know, do they have a reason for this? Are they OK with it? You know. Well, they're definitely not okay with it. They told me they consider it one of their biggest issues, one of their highest priorities. But from speaking with them, it's very clear this is a complex issue with a lot of factors 
weighing in, but high on the list is that they are experiencing a historically high attrition rate, something like 20% over the last two years for disability examiners. They're having difficulty hiring people, and there's a real shortage of medical experts to begin with who can review these kinds of cases. They're having processing issues, capacity issues. They say they're working to improve that, but they need more funding, more sustained funding. Uh, we did point out in our report that Social Security Administration got an increase this year in its budget, uh, a fifth, but they got 55% of the increase the president requested. So they got more money, but not as much as they were hoping for. And we also heard from Department of Health Services, which is also involved in this process, that these examiners who review these cases are highly trained professionals. It takes a couple of years just to get them fully trained and independent. And there are also long lead times for the background checks required for these jobs. Credentialing alone can take six weeks and candidates sometimes just walk waiting for this process to wrap up. They find another job. They don't have time to wait to go through this credentialing process. And so all of this means that there is a large percentage of examiners working who don't have a lot of experience, who are learning this job and are handling a very large caseload that's built up over time with increased scrutiny as well, which also complicates matters. Well, and then there's, you know, you kind of like the straw that breaks camel's back, you know, so you talk about staffing shortages and you talk about the an increase or an influx of people applying for these. And then there's technology. And I know you've done a lot of stories, you know, with some of the government agencies that you know, some some of the things are beyond their control and they're working as hard as they can and working through these and processing these. So what are some of the technology restraints that they've had? So this is something that the, the Department of Health Services brought up. They said that Social Security mandated that all of the state disability determination services migrate to a new federal system for processing claims and that transition in Wisconsin began in 2019, which means the majority of examiners began using this new system mid-pandemic from home, which was challenging. And prior to this migration, we're told Wisconsin used a system that had been customized over many decades to maximize efficiency and meet Wisconsin's specific needs. And DHS says our old system was better. This legacy system was superior to the current system. We had more automatic prompts and things that made the whole process faster. So all of this slowed down the process frustrated examiners and made the attrition problem worse because this steep learning curve led to many examiners retiring or seeking work elsewhere during the pandemic and snowballing from there. Now we've got the issues facing the larger labor market that they are not immune to. So it sounds like there's just kind of a lot of struggles across the board from, you know, struggles and frustrations from everybody, you know, from the people that are applying to the people that are trying to process to the people that are dealing with the technology. So the next question is kind of like a no brainer. So what's being done to fix all of this? Well, we're told they're using these special teams of current and retired Social Security employees to assist DDS, Disability Determination Services, with their processing. They're putting more effort into recruitment and retention initiatives. They're also reviewing their whole process to figure out how they can become more efficient. They're hoping to get more funding down the road and they're analyzing, you know, what led up to this backlog? How can we prevent that from happening again? And we do know that Wisconsin just gave 150 people pay raises at DDS, hoping that will help attract 
and retain workers. But when we ask about solutions in our responses from these agencies, we hear a lot of phrases like multi-pronged approach and ongoing initiatives. And it makes clear that this is a complicated problem. There are larger issues at play in the, the labor market. And there's also the issue of funding, which they feel has not been adequately addressed yet. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of things contributing. One of the things that I like most about Context 6 reports are that we tend to be able to see the process through um, and get either, you know, a resolution or we kind of get an update on this person's case, their, you know, issue, where they stand with a company. Um, so do we know what happened with Christine's case? We do. So we were in communication with Social Security through their Chicago region um, about this story and about Christine's case. And we shared Christine's information with her permission to Social Security. And six days after that, she got word that DDS had approved her claims, which um, was surprising to her. She'd been getting some conflicting information about the status of those claims and, and what she needed to do. But she, she learned that they were approved. Three days after that, she got her first payment. And she has since received back pay, and she's gotten monthly payments as well. And this adds up to quite a bit of money that she needed and was entitled to. She qualifies for the program. So we are very happy that we were able to help her and help her get the decision that she needed that will impact her life. Speaking of people who have written to Contact 6 looking for answers, we also recently ran another Contact 6 report about a Milwaukee woman who had a different issue. She was unhappy about her neighbor's Airbnb, and it all started with a New Year's Eve party that got out of control. She wrote to us asking about her rights as a neighbor in a city neighborhood, and we thought she was asking some really interesting questions. This story, when you and I first started talking about this story, it never even dawned on me, you know, that Airbnbs could just be in city neighborhoods. And and you're right. What literally what are the rights of people in those neighborhoods and neighbors? So why did you want to do this story? Well, I, I think you're right. This isn't Door County, right? This isn't the Dells. This isn't northern Wisconsin. This is a city neighborhood. You expect to find Airbnbs in those other places. But in these neighborhoods with small lots, with shared alleys, with close-knit communities. Um, this woman told us, you know, I don't like the idea of not knowing who's coming and going from my neighbor's house. So we got an email from a woman named Chanel in Milwaukee. We ended up interviewing her for our story. And she told us there had just been a party at her neighbor's Airbnb on New Year's Eve. They got out of control. So what happened is she thought she heard fireworks that night. Her husband went into the backyard to investigate and he saw a crowd of people in their back alley shouting things like our Airbnb was just shot up. Help. Uh, the Airbnb was just across the alley from their home. This was a shared alley neighborhood. So her husband opened the gate and let everybody pass through their yard. They're shouting and this is captured on security camera footage. So police were called that night for a report of shots fired. They didn't find anybody injured. Thank goodness they didn't find evidence of shots. But this whole incident left Chanel asking, what rights do I have as a neighbor? We're all impacted by what's going on at this house. And we thought, you know, with the upcoming RNC, with people renting out their homes for baseball games and festivals, that was a, a good question to try to answer. 
So does Airbnb have anything on their website or, you know, how did they respond to this? Because I, I know you reached out to them. They do have a lot of information for neighbors on their website. They basically said this incident is rare. Um, this doesn't happen often. Most of our hosts and guests are responsible. Uh, it says their marketplace bans parties and has a 24-7 phone line for neighbors. And it is working with a neighbor in this case, which is Chanel. So they immediately suspended this listing to find out if any rules were violated. The homeowner is unable to reactivate the listing until that investigation is over. So it sounds like they're doing what they can, but from a distance, right? So Chanel is the one living across the alley from this. She can call them and report this, but they're going to have to handle it from a distance. And right now, you know, they suspended the listing which was something she appreciated, but it is possible this person will be able to rent out their home again. Well, and what about that person, you know, the homeowner? Were, were they there when the party happened or? She was not. She told me she was not in town. She rents out her house when she's traveling. And she basically said, you know, sometimes people just break the rules. Someone reported the party to her that night. She had someone go over there and shut it down. And with the exception of the woman who rented the house and her sister, um, everybody left and the renters left early the next morning, the guests. Um, but those people did live locally. And we had some discussion about whether she would ever filter out people who live locally to prevent you know, a New Year's Eve party. And she said she's automatically approving everybody. She has that kind of setting up on Airbnb. But she said, I've been on this about a, a year. Most of the time, visits are quiet, they're uneventful. And she said, I can't control what other people do. And I said, do you feel you have the right to continue to rent out your home? She said, I, I do. I feel like I have the right to use my home as a business to earn money on my home when I'm not there. And she is considering listing her property again if Airbnb allows her to do so. So in talking about rights and Wisconsin law, you know, there are laws for short-term rentals. So, you know, do those tend to go more toward the renter, the rentee, neighbors? Yeah, we spoke with a real estate attorney for this story who told us that Wisconsin really favors the free use of real estate. It is among the most friendly states to the operators of rental properties. So a short-term rental is basically a residential building available for fewer than 29 days for rent. And under state law, homeowners can rent out their homes for seven days to 29 days. And what a municipality can do is say no to short-term rentals fewer than seven days, or they can require a local permit, and some have. Um, and then they have to follow other rules that come with maintaining a short-term rental property and taxes will be collected and so on. Um, but that's state rules. It's up to local communities and cities to set their own rules when it comes to that seven days or fewer. Did you look into what Milwaukee has? Yes, so Milwaukee has not banned short-term rentals fewer than seven days. In Milwaukee, there's no special use permit required. There's no zoning policy that's restricting this kind of use. You do need to get a state license from DATCAP, like everywhere across the street from the Department of Neighborhood Services. Um, I did reach out to an alderman who proposed restricting some of these short-term rentals years ago. He told me that proposal was never adopted and there's been no discussion of restricting these short-term rentals further since then. So as uh, per usual with your stories for Contact 6, it, it prompts me to think like, okay, what what, what what would I do or what can I do? So so 
as far as neighbors and, you know, knowing kind of what's going on in your neighborhood, what options do people have if maybe something like this happens to them, if they're that neighbor who sees the party or something happens? They have pretty much the same rights that anyone has if they have a problem neighbor. We did a story years ago about a, a neighbor whose next door um, neighbor uh, had a really smelly property, right? They could report it to the municipality, they could report it to their alderman. Um, and that's basically what you can do if you have an Airbnb next door. You can report noise violations. You can report parking violations to the police. You can do those kind of things, but it's really no different than having someone on your street who likes to throw big parties all the time. If, if someone wants to join a short-term rental marketplace, there's really not much neighbors can do to stop them except monitor the property and report problems when they arise. So it is time to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And this is where we would usually say, I'm joined now by Sarah Smith, but you're already here. <laughs> here Sarah, I hi. am. Still. Hi again. Um, so, okay, today, here is my question. Um, what random item found inside your childhood home most likely wouldn't be found in homes today? Do you have an answer already thought of? Yeah, I, you know, I, th I as I read the question this morning before we started this, I'm like, okay, I better have an answer. Um, my, the first thing <laughs> I thought of was um, when AOL started and, you know, you had dial-up. Mm. And we used to get those CDs um, that were like free 50 hours of internet or AOL or oh, whatever. Oh, yeah. And you'd spin them in your little tower and, you know, you'd get your free little internet. And then we started using them just as Frisbees. But, um huh. Yeah, I think about those and phone books. Phone books is a really good one. I remember map books. Oh, Do you remember those? Yep. Those huge. I could never figure out where to find the street if it went off the page. Right. Yeah. It's like, do I flip the page? Nope. It's the next state. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. I, I remember getting in a news car when I first started oh, reporting. Yeah. And they handed me this giant book because we didn't have the GPS right, yet. Right. And I could, the photographers who drive would get so frustrated with me because I couldn't read the map book. And I so much wanted a big map. I, you know, I was trying to think of like toys right. and things that I had, but a lot of those are coming back. Isn't like I had wild? a light bright. My kid has a light bright. There's a lot of toys, even that Target has. I, I say Target just because that's all I can think of right now is that they they've brought back a lot of those like old school like Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys mm -hmm. and and that you know some of those like um, like the old Fisher Price toys. I think about the phone, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't have a landline. Right. Nope. Not us either. You know, I even had a dial-up phone growing up, and I remember yeah. thinking that was pretty fun. It's why, like, my, my childhood best friend's phone numbers yes. is one of the only numbers I still remember yes. by heart because yep. I dialed it so many times. Yep. Um, and we were talking the other day about how do we have, like, a family phone because our kids are too young to have phones. Yes. And what do we do in an emergency? And we were talking about getting another phone, and then we discovered that Alexa can call people. <laughs> she sure can. So we just set that up. And our, our kids can now just say, you know, girlfriend. Yeah. Can you? That's, that's so funny. That's what we call her in our house, too. <laughs> we look at her can and we you go, call so you know when so. girlfriend does this thing? Um, yeah, but you're right. You know, even before when we were kids, you know, and I would say, oh, I'm going to call down the street, you know, Amy and see if she wants to play. And mm -hmm. now my kids will be like, can you text so-and-so's mom to see if we can have a play date, you know? 
And so now I'm, right. you know, social it's coordinator. It's a lot more complicated mm-hmm. than it used to be. But yeah. yeah, that's probably the phone. Some of the technology stuff, yeah. But like, okay, so now what about your, do your parents have a landline still? My parents still do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's 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 not on a cord. Those old phones that were on the cord, yeah. I really liked those. Um, I was trying to think of what else we would have. But that, I mean, it's just a lot of old tech. It's, yeah, really. toys and tech, really. Yeah, I know. I'm starting to even think of like food stuff. Um well, and even a lot of the fashion is all coming back. Like things that, right? you know, things well, I was that I... Of, like leggings with, the only difference is yes. they don't have the stirrups on the bottom anymore. Oh, stirrups, that man. That's where it was at. <laughs> then you'd wear your like I chunky socks over them. I remember they used to them. stretch. Yeah. Right? Mine would stretch like mid-calf because <laughs> of when I would grow. <laughs> and just loops on either side. Yeah, yeah. It's like a bodysuit oh, so for your great. heels. Oh, that's so funny. Um, oh, I know. Well. But, uh, yeah, I would, I would say a lot's... A lot's changed, but a lot stayed the same. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, please send our investigative team an email. That is at fox6investigators at fox.com. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. No problem. And that's all from us. There's probably a better way to end it, but that's what I got. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.